0: You got to make a plan and and you should set anchors. So, you know, the average bear market lasts about a year and is a 35% drawdown. So what you can do to front run a recession is to look at your positions in stocks, for example, and, and just cut off 35% and then just reflect how you'll feel and how you'll change your lifestyle or whatever and say, okay, that's a realistic downside scenario. I hope it doesn't happen. But if it doesn't happen, then you're happy. If it does happen, you expected it, Right. And you just adjust your life accordingly. You know, so for me, I've, I've lopped off 30% of my net worth. So, okay, 30% of my net worth, done, gone, incinerated into thin air. How will I change the way I live? And I decided I'm actually going to spend more money because that pisses me off that I'm losing all that money in thin air. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to spend it on my experiences and things so I, I don't lose it to the market as much. It's everybody's different, but you set anchors, you set goals, you plan accordingly.
1: What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, Godzilla, aka Rob, Account can Lose, aka No Kagan. In today's episode, I talk to my good buddy, Sam Dogan, who runs one of my favorite financial sites, The Financial Samurai. Like many people, Sam lost his job and lost a ton of money in the 2008 market crash, but he credited that with him being super successful and kicking him in the butt, which he started his blog, which has led him on an amazing journey that I am so excited to share with you, especially if you've had a day job and you're like, I think there's always got to be something more out there. Sam literally has one of my favorite blogs ever on personal finance. So if you're interested in personal finance, and pretty much everyone is, uh, I think you're gonna really enjoy this episode. He also has a new book coming out called Buy This, Not That. You can check it out at financialsamurai.com slash btnt. I basically buy and do whatever Sam says. And I really enjoy talking with him about money. If you ever wanna learn about making and saving more money and living the life you truly want, then you are gonna love this episode. In the conversation, here's three gigantic things. Number one, how to remove your bias in decision-making dose, how to build a rental property portfolio that can pay for your retirement. And how many do you actually need? Sam will tell you his number and three, nothing is as scary as it is in your head and why you can recover from most mistakes. Enjoy those three things. Plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure you check out AppSumo.com slash Noah. If you run an online business or you've always wanted to be starting one, AppSumo has the best deals on software. Go sign up for the newsletter at AppSumo.com slash Noah to see what kind of deals they have on the site today. I helped start the site 12 years ago. It's still running and promoting awesome tools for entrepreneurs just like you. AppSumo.com slash Noah. Also, special pre-show shout out to listener Nick2482. I wonder how they chose that number. He left a review saying, amazing content, a must for listening and implementing. Noah's content throughout the five podcasts is essential. They are golden nuggets for everyone in any circumstances. It's a must for listening. Thank you, Nick, and every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, you know what to do. Leave a review wherever you listen to the show. I check every single one of them.
0: How's Sam? I'm just surviving, you know. I got two two young kids at home. I uh, spent two more than two years writing the book, Buy This, Not That. Finally coming out July 19th, so I'm really thrilled about that. It's kind of like birthing a child, but may, maybe harder or maybe the equivalent for a male birth of a child. And I'm happy to uh, take a break after August and kick back again.
1: I was curious because 10 years ago, you were in finance in New York. Was it about 10 years?
0: 1999 to 2001, I was in New York City. Yep. So about 20 years ago. I mean, that's crazy, right? 21 years. Yeah, to more than 20 years ago.
1: I think I'm curious for you to reflect on that because like what an interesting journey. You had a very traditional what everyone expected of you life. like You're going to go to finance, do stocks, do this. And then you, you're like, I'm going to blog and then have this kind of alternative approach that, that seems like it's working out. Like
0: I'd love for, uh, to hear your, your reflection on that. I mean, yeah, now that you bring about the topic, I mean, 20 plus years, that's crazy how quickly it's gone. And yeah, I mean, I got lucky getting a job uh, at Goldman Sachs in New York City. It was seven rounds, 55 interviews. And I had an opportunity to go to uh, Shenzhen, which is Southern China, to work at a father's friend's eyeglass factory out of all places and I like, kind of managed that operation. And it was just, you know, China was opening up and I thought, you know, I studied Chinese in college as a minor and I thought, man, what a great opportunity to go there because I've always wanted to do something entrepreneurial and just jump off the deep end. But then when I got this job that took seven months, it was like seven months and seven rounds. I said, you know, I can't pass up this job. You know, it's the, it's the stable path to riches. You know, you make your income, all that, yada, yada. And so I did that and it worked fine. I, I immediately didn't like it because I had to get into the office at 5.30 a.m. And then I'd have to leave at like 8 p.m. It was just ridiculous, right? You got to get in way before the, your senior sales traders come in, before the market. And then you had to stay late because Asia opened up and I had to correspond with my colleagues in Asia. And so really quickly, I realized I couldn't last. So that's the good thing about having a terrible job is that it makes you want to save and invest aggressively to get the hell out, right? I grinded it out for 13 years and I said, you know what, I got to do something else. And during the financial crisis, I started Financial Samurai in 2009, exactly at the bottom of the market in July 2009. And it started growing and it just became such a passion project. And it was so fun that I was like, you know what, this could be something good after finance.
1: I think what what I like providing people is kind of the timeframes. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes not. But like, how long did it take to finally make that a real thing in terms of that could be your, your actual income and in full time?
0: Yeah, so... 2009, I started Financial Samurai, and then by 2012, I left my banking job, which paid well. I mean, it paid half a million dollars more you know, and up, right? You know, Big risk, obviously, but my parents were supportive. They're like, ah, it's okay. You'll find something to do, and you like what you do, and you like to write. And by then, I mean, Financial Samurai was something I really enjoyed doing. I would do it for free. It didn't really matter. It was just so fun to connect. And it was probably making like 70, 80 grand a year from advertisement. But then I also had passive uh, investment income right, from real estate, rental, rental properties and dividend stocks. So I had a, probably another $70,000, $80,000 there. So I knew that no matter what, I would be okay if I left. And then I also negotiated a severance. So the severance was the key catalyst to escape banking. Because when you work in banking, as you work in tech, you get deferred compensation. And the more senior you get, the more deferred compensation you get. So by the time I wanted to leave in 2012, I had three years of deferred compensation plus this toxic asset investment they forced us to buy back in 2009 and 10. That had like a seven-year vest. So it was coming out in 2017. And if I had quit, I would have lost three years worth of deferred compensation, which was you know, a lot of money. And then I would have missed out on this, uh, this toxic asset investment that actually turned out quite well because it bought like all these mortgage-backed securities in Tokyo. Negotiated severance was like that was like my key ticket. I was like, okay, if I don't leave now to do something that I want to do, then I'm never going to leave at thirty four How was that? I mean, it was great. It was scary it, it, you know a lot of hesitation, you know what are you doing walking away from you know multiple six figure income? If you just stay the course until you're forty, you'll have x amount of money. But at the time you know I just realized you know finance was no longer fun. The financial crisis made it you know where you know everything was very scrutinized you became public enemy number 1 if you worked in finance and you know more money wasn't a motivator and i saw my bosses you know they made more money but it's like they weren't really happy so i didn't want to go down that path and just be like them so i wanted to do my own thing even though it meant like making 80 plus percent less at least for the first year what do you think people in their 20s or people in, and people in their 50s can learn from that i think in your 20s you don't want to YOLO it too hard because, I mean, it's just, yeah, I, mean, I think we're all, especially now, you know, you're influenced by social media and everything. But I think that's the time where you want to learn the most and work your hardest because you have the most amount of energy and the least amount of responsibility. So you can take crazy amount of risks, start your own business, start your side hustle, apply to these jobs, fly around the world for your job, whatever. Take more risks is what I'm saying, because you have so much time and energy to make up any losses. And for people in their 50s and above, I would say take more risks and just don't waste that time. Treat your time as the most precious commodity. Absolutely. 100%, man. It's funny, I'm 40, just turned 40. Happy 40th. Thank you. Well, it made me realize,
1: like the, literally this week, that I probably have 30 years of 30 usable years. Like I can live till 90 or 120, but realistically, like I'm going to be on a chair watching Wheel of Fortune eating microwave dinners, like, you know, I'm not gonna be doing much. So like, my body will be good till 80. And so I'm like, I don't know, like, I was debating getting a I just bought a $15,000 bike. And, uh, you know, I probably spent a few months thinking about it. And, uh, you know, in the business, we'll spend 20,000 on ads a day. But I did think like, look, "Look, I bike a lot. This is something important to me. And like, at the end of the day, like, I have 30 years left, why not enjoy the thing? If I can, when I can, not just to indulge and you know, go in debt,
0: but I can afford it too. It was a good reminder for myself. Absolutely. I mean, the older we get, The faster time goes literally because each year left takes up a greater percentage of your remaining years, right? So let's say you live to 80, you know, the first year is 180th, but then your 41st year is like 140th. So it's literally double the value and the time. So I mean, we've got to think about decumulation mode. I mean, I'm thinking about decumulation mode at age 45, which is to spend down your wealth so you don't die with so much. And I think a lot of us, we're so focused on saving, investing, building a business that we just make so much more money than we need, and then if we end up dying with all this money, it's like, what a waste. Like, instead of spending $500,000 extending our quali- our lives by six months towards the end, we could have spent less time not making that $500,000 or a million dollars while we're in our 30s, 40s, and 50s, right? One, I love that phrase. It's kind of like Bill Perkins' book, The Die With Zero One. Exactly, yeah. Which is great. I guess, how have you changed your behavior and how are you decumulating? So I'm gonna be 45- this June 2022. And I have a decumulation plan and it's going to start small and then it's going to work its way up. So like, ev- like every like big financial decision, you want to start small, see how you feel, you know, and then go from there. So my plan, I mean, I've already done a lot of the calculations and pro forma analysis of what my net worth will be, you know, in 5, 10, 30, 40 years, right? Based on different return scenarios and saving scenarios, but it's to start small first, you know? You know, you go to your Uber Eats and you, instead of ordering like Kentucky fried chicken, you order some Toro sashimi, you know, instead of spending 20 bucks, you spend like a hundred bucks and then you start with the food, right? And then you eat your food. You don't have to spend, you know, a hundred dollars on dinner. And then you're like, okay, how did I feel spending that? And if you feel okay, then you just continue spending more. So we're going to try to conquer food. We've already conquered tuition. We're spending a lot of money on our kids. And uh, maybe we'll conquer housing next. Maybe we'll live it up and try to buy a, a house we don't knew, need. I don't know. And then after that, we're going to try to do more philanthropy besides just giving money away to friends and family, which is actually the easiest, is to give money away to good causes beyond your friends and family. So it's a process that I'm going to try to implement over the next 40 years, if I live 40 years, and let's see how it goes.
1: This is very untalked about because it's, it's a smaller percentage of the population, but I, I do think there's some issue that people don't know how to spend money. Oh, yeah. My parents worked 25 years, hard years. Like, I don't work hard, dude. I'm like hanging out with you talking about finance. Like, this is fun. I can't believe, like, this is like a career of sorts. And our, my parents, like, hated their jobs, not always, but a lot of the time made all this money not a ton but a, a good amount. Yeah. And they're like, "Uh, oh, we're going to go to 7-Eleven, buy an extra-large coffee and then, just, you know, divvy it up for the week." Or <laughs> you know, just like the amount of frugality and and it's that's fine. They should live whatever makes them happy, but I think there's ways that they could save time or they could do it a little bit more luxurious. So I'm I spend my money <laughs> to do that for them. Like I bought them first-class tickets and my mom's like, "No, I'll just I'll just stay in coach and then I'll come visit you."
0: Yeah. (laughs) In first class.
1: She's like, you did just give me this food. I'm like, Mom, I'll just get you. And uh and so I think it's it's actually challenging for them and a lot of people, even if you don't make a lot, to uh figure out how to enjoy it
0: and to be able to like this bike thing that we talked about earlier. And it seems like with you the decumulation. I bet in three to five years, you're gonna look back and say, This fifteen thousand dollar bike you bought was like the best fifteen thousand dollars you spent. And you will have no you will not miss the fifteen thousand dollars at all at all so i think you're good i think i think i mean your company is doing well sounds like you guys killing it so (laughs) well i I think
1: part of that is like spending i think like things that you spend time on or things you know i think people heard this shit it's not new but like your bed like activities you're spending a lot of time on like i know you do a lot of tennis you know like go get the nice thing where you're already spending that kind of time
0: yeah absolutely it is hard once you're in accumulation mode for 10 20 30 years to then flip the switch you know how you got to practice Convincing someone to date you or hire you, you got to practice convincing someone to let you go, to break up with you, to negotiate a severance and let you be free. It's just the practice in in reverse. Yeah, my, my brother has like a, a five hundred dollar geo tracker. Okay, what was he tracking?
1: No geo tracker, like a car. I don't even know what you call it. Piece of crap. It's what? I, is it? That's the category. Okay. I think what you said I really liked too is that he's like, I don't know if I want to get rid of it. I'm like, are you using? It? He's like, no, but I just like maybe one day. And I, and I was like, dude, maybe think of this not so much as like a finality, but as a practice. Like, you don't want it, you don't use it. You're spending a lot of cycles on it. You have 140th left to live. Like, practice letting that go, or practice indulging a bit. Like, I practice getting a nice car, and like it literally does zero for me. But I'm, I got a nicer bike. I'm pretty sure I'm gonna be stoked. Or I spent, I just spent like fifteen thousand on art, and I'm like so (laughs) nice. Yeah. Like I have this art piece coming here. I have like a a few other ones and I don't know if they'll be worth it.
0: It might appreciate too. That's the addiction. So you buy, if you can buy an investment, you appreciate that also. So appreciates in value. I mean, that's a double win, which is why kind of real estate has been such an addiction for me because you enjoy it. You make memories. And then, Hey, if you wake up five, 10 years later and it's up 50% in value, you're like, Oh shoot, I'm living for free and I'm making money.
1: I mean, the two things on that is like I did this YouTube video just went out; it's going viral about uh, asking super car owners like how to make money, how to make a million, and um, a lot of them are like, "Oh yeah, this is an investment. Like these these cars go up." Yeah. The other part of that, I will say, Sam, is I always was in accumulation mode until probably about till right when COVID kind of hit uh, a little bit before, and I finally got a nice house. This is like a, a multi million dollar house, and you don't need a multi million dollar house, but like I never had anything nice even when I was growing up. It has made my baseline happiness like ten times happier. To your point about the house, like a real estate, I love people coming. I love people staying here. I like, I have a friend coming today in in like an hour. He's going to sleep over and like, oh, nice. I love sharing it. I I don't know. So it's just interesting the things that we can buy that give us like baseline happiness, you know, increments on the, on the X axis or Y axis. Absolutely. And then maybe it goes up. I don't know. I don't really care. (laughs) I don't want everyone to sell it. (laughs) Um, Did you ever get your house in Hawaii? You,
0: you need to, uh, you talk about it so much. It's annoying. Every time I try to leave. Pull me back into San Francisco. <laughs> no, I never got my house in Hawaii. But it's interesting. There was a house that I wanted to buy in Hawaii. And it's like s- sweet house, and it was on the ocean front, and it's on my favorite beach, really secluded beach. And I really wanted to buy it, but you know it cost a crap ton of money. And I saw it five years later, and f- fifteen feet of its beachfront had eroded away into the beach. And so what used to be like fifteen foot buffer to the gate to the sandy beach became like a two foot buffer where the pool is and any more in the pool would fall into the beach. So I was thinking to myself, Oh, maybe, uh, maybe it's good not to buy a beachfront property in Hawaii. <laughs> I guess I, I'm curious, what have been some of your best purchases? And then
1: what are some of your irrational spending things? Like things you you don't spend on irrationally. And what I mean by that is sometimes, uh, you know, at the airport, I still can't buy the water oh, yeah. or like, you know, you buy some airport, like, ah, oh, it's a double bloody Mary. They're like $30. I'm like, you just feel foolish spending <laughs> something at such huge margins, profit margins. Uh, man, it's, it's a principle. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I'm curious for curious to you, some of your best purchases that you're, give you joy
0: or that worked out and then maybe some of your rational spending habits. Well, my best purchase is also curiously equivalent to the price of your bike, $15,000. And uh, it was my hot tub that I bought years ago, like six, seven years ago you know, I had to create a cement platform, a flat cement platform with rebar. I had to wire extra wires. It was like a $13,600 hot tub. And it's like what the San Francisco Giants use in the club room. It fits like six people. And it is absolutely the best purchase, especially during COVID. I walked over to the hot tub. It's only like a couple blocks away at our rental house. And I took my son there like three, four times a week. We would hang out, we'd have fun. And I don't know if you remember when you were a kid, everything looked huge, was huge when you were a kid. And then when you grow older, you're like, oh, that's it. It's like so small. But I think it's like it's provided the best memories, the best relaxation time, the best time to think about new ideas, new posts, all that good stuff. So Hot Tub is number one at $15,000. In terms of bad purchases, I made a terrible investment in 2007 and I bought a vacation property. Uh, and that was, you know, obviously one year before the financial crisis, I thought I was getting a good deal down 15%, but it went down another 40%. <laughs> so that was a terrible, terrible buy. Um, but I bought it kind of out as nostalgia because that's the place in Lake Tahoe where I took my girlfriend at the time and then where I proposed. And I thought, oh, it'd be nice to buy this two bedroom, two co- bathroom condo and bring our future kids one day. Our kids didn't come for 10 years. So <laughs> it was like a really mistimed purchase. And I also was kind of delusional in 27 to think that my income and my my growth at my firm would continue to go higher. And I would extrapolate that income and growth for like five, 10 years out and say, oh, no problem buying this vacation property that accounted for like 35% of my net worth. And then of course, everything went to hell a couple of years later.
1: I am curious, what other, any other decision, Like, cause you, you do put out amazing stuff on Financial Samurai. You're the, probably, you're the only financial newsletter I still read. And uh, you know, your book coming out, definitely recommend it. I'm going to be buying it Buy this, not that. I think what I'm curious about though, is that have you been wrong or what have you been wrong about pre COVID until today? So from you know, 2020, 2019, until where we're at. Like, or how has your mindset shifted? It sounds like decumulation mode is,
0: is one of them. Is there any things that you've changed your mind on? I mean, I've definitely changed my mind on continuing to grind to try to make more money. There's just like endless amount of money. And I think I'm so burned out and I'm so tired since 2020. Um, Writing the book, taking care of two little kids, writing on Financial Samurai. I want a break. And I think a lot of people are burned out as well. And so my mindset is definitely shifting towards accumulation. In terms of errors, I mean, I have many errors. I have, um, you know, besides a vacation property losing 40 plus percent of its value since I bought it. If I could do it over again, I might not have, quote, fake retired in 2012 at age 34. I would have probably grinded it out like maybe one more year, two more years, really kind of lived it up. Because what happened was I decided, you know what, in January 2012, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of here. And then by April, end of April, I was out of there, right? And that was not a lot of time to think and to enjoy. Like if you remember back when you were in high school, I don't know, some kids like smart kids, senior year, like fall senior year, they would already know where they're going to college. And so, like for the remainder of the senior year, they had so much fun. They didn't care about grades. They were just hooping it up, like whooping it up, right? And so, f- for me, if I had planned even better, I would have planned my exit maybe in 2013 or 2014, like one or two years later. And I would have tried to really enjoy the time there, build better relationships, plan the transition better with Financial Samurai, maybe relocate to the Hong Kong office or the London office and gone on that adventure, like more adventures, right? Because I haven't gone on a lot of adventures in, since 2017. Now, since my son was born. But yeah, take more risks. It's just nothing is as scary as in your head. You can always usually recover from from kind of any mistakes unless they're fatal. I think the the two things there for me was, I did have, you know my, similar to you,
1: I think everyone should not quit their day job until their side hustle is working. Or if you like both, do both. I, one of my, do you know Steve Chu from MyWifeQuitterJob.com? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love Steve. He was making a lot of money in his e-commerce business and his blog and he didn't quit his day job for like five years. He's like, I don't know, I like my friends there and it's fun. Yeah. And then eventually he's like, I don't know, it's, it's a little bit too much. And, uh, but I really admired that. I think the other thing for me was that I miss structure. Like when I went solo, you don't have structure. Like when I'm in, like now at AppSumo.com, it's like, we have a team meeting here and then we have a Thursday thing here and then I check in here and then we have to do this thing here. And it's like, it's good. It makes it, it's just different where when you're solo or small individually, you have to kind of create your own schedule, which uh, I found a little harder.
0: Yeah. I mean, you'll figure it out, right? Everybody kind of figures out what works for them. Like right now, what works for me is um, I got to wake up at like six, try to write and do stuff until eight 30. And then I take my son to school because I can't, I can't focus if there's like noise. And then it's just after like 9 PM, then I'll start doing some stuff. But actually I'm curious for AppSumo, what, what was the company that sold for mega billions of dollars in your space? Oh, MailChimp sold oh, for a lot. Was it MailChimp? It was like 8 they billion. It sold for 12 billion. 12 billion. Okay. So given you're in that space and you guys are private and you guys are doing well, you guys are crushing it. So how do you see that tremendous wealth creation and how does that make you feel and how does that change your mindset?
1: It doesn't really. I, didn't, I tweeted about MailChimp today just like that they're a lifestyle business and I was actually kind of surprised they sold because I, I believe from what I've heard, they were making a billion dollars a year profit. <laughs> really? like some some insane number right some insane I don't know if, but the founders are basically worth billions of dollars like cash liquid the revenue is a billion I don't know if their profit was that, but they're it's very very high and so that doesn't really make me jealous or inspire me because I, I you know we talked about the team I think the question is what really what do you really think about when you wake up No yeah. like today at AppSumo, I think I'll share it like roughly we helped partners and we promoted things so like today we did two hundred thousand dollars in revenue we gave out half of that. Almost to partners promoting the different products, and we keep after fees and everything. We kept you know a little less than half, and I don't really care. Like it's cool. I if it goes down, I'm definitely like mindful. But if it goes up, it doesn't change my level of happiness. Like I'm much more excited about like what products do we promote? Am I working with cool people? Are we launching new products? Like I think what the reality for me, and and this is something I was curious for you, is like I have more than enough. Yeah, and so the the motivation to have a billion, it's like, well, do I have to do a lot more work to get it? Because I don't want to. Yeah, it's not that I don't want to do work. I just like okay, well, what is required? What's the sacrifice? Like this is something I thought about for wealth creation is like, what is the sacrifice required for that? Do I really want that outcome willing to do the sacrifice? And I think most people want the outcome without the sacrifice. And I've done a lot in my twenties to get to where I am, but I've generally, I'm not as motivated by that. I'm motivated by more by progress. Like the idea of like we can progress and you know, if someone, and I've said this, I'll say it straight up. If someone came and offered a billion for AppSumo, I, I would sell. Okay. And I think there's a day where we could be worth that amount. Like, I think we're doing a lot of interesting things, promoting software products and helping launch companies and helping people find good deals on tools. I think we can get there. Yeah. That's not a true North Star for me. And I think we all have to be, we have to listen to ourselves. Like what you said, try it out. Be like, all right, I want to make a billion dollars. Like, I'm barely spending what I have now. And then what is it, you know, this this pursuit of more, I, I think, as you called out is, you know, is a very misguided thing for a lot of people. But here's a, here's something I was in that same vein that I'm curious about how you think about. I see real estate, like I was in Austin. I am in Austin. I saw this place and I was like, "Oh, I should have bought this place. I should have bought this that actually drives more jealousy. in me. Yeah. And then I try to be mindful. Okay, like, are you jealous of the money? Or what are you really jealous of? Because if it's really about money, you should just do AppSumo. Like your opportunity cost of AppSumo is literally in the seven to eight figures like buying this house, you'll make like, at most, two thousand dollars a month profit. Okay, and uh, maybe appreciation too. And so that's where I find jealousy. But I, I have to remind myself, like, well, how do you really like? How much do you want to live? How much do you want to have to live? And how do you want to spend your time? because yeah. that's where I, I have this internal struggle where I'm like, oh, I want more property to be cool. And it's like, well, go Airbnb and stay there. You don't. Do you have to own it? I don't know. So that's been something I, I have a little bit more of a struggle with than how much money our company can be making. Like I, I want to be able to get paid well and pay our team well and make sure partners are well and all that stuff. But I don't really get tickled on that. I get tickled on this real estate stuff more.
0: Well, the thing with real estate is the easiest way to feel poor is to look at real estate listings because unlike buying a car, like you can probably buy 99% of the cars out there. So that's why you don't have car FOMO. You can buy 99.9% of all the bikes out there, which is why you don't have bike FOMO. But with real estate, there is a limit to how much you can buy. And the price of real estate is almost unlimited, right? It goes into the hundreds of millions of dollars. And like Mukesh Albani or whatever in uh, Mumbai has a billion dollar property too. So it could go into a billion. So real estate is is the one thing where we imagine ourselves owning it, throwing parties, raising a family, living a life of our dreams. And if we keep on looking, we'll eventually find that property that we cannot easily or comfortably attain, which is what drives us. (laughs) (laughs) And which, which is what drives us to feel the way we feel, where we're just not like ah, where where we feel a little bit of envy and jealousy, and we want to like strive for more to make that to to buy that. But everything else, everything is affordable. Like I was talking to a friend of mine, and he's probably worth half a billion, and we're trying to figure out what was what is the net worth amount where the marginal joy is just no more, like zero. It doesn't really matter. And we came up to the conclusion that was that number was like about 50 million, maybe it's 30 million, but let's say 50 million for sure. So at $50 million, you can still buy 10 to $15 million home. You can fly private everywhere. You can send your kids to private school. You can eat Toro sashimi every single day and you can get trainers and personal chefs. You can look good, feel good. You're good at 30 to 50 million. That's like equivalent to 99% of, I think, billionaire lifestyle or half a billionaire lifestyle. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think the takeaway for me there, how much do we actually need to live the life we want? Yeah,
1: and it's different for everyone, right? I think the biggest surprise is it's much, I think people don't get this, but it's so much lower than we think, than we realize. People are like, I need to make this money. It's like, how do you want to live? Like, and you could, you can have all this stuff, but like, it's actually low. And I think people work, like, what you said, decumulation, it's like you're working so much harder, maybe, and it's okay to work hard if you like it, but if you're doing shit you don't like, like, that's the, yeah. the problem I have. I mean, I'm trying to think, like, my net worth is in the eight figures. I don't fly private. I have Southwest, you know, want to get away tickets. <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty damn happy. I wouldn't mind flying private all the time. That shit,
0: it's a little... Let's just say it's $10,000 an hour.
1: You can do it. It might have gone up. I thought, it was, like, when I've looked, it's like six.
0: Yeah, six to 10000 an hour.
1: I was just trying to think, like, if I could sell AppSumo and make $50 million today, would I make that call? And the answer is probably no. Because what I get to do for work and who I get to work with, honestly, like, right now is, yeah. is, is highly valuable.
0: Well, I think you're really lucky. I would say most people don't enjoy their work or just checked out or there's some thorn in their side, some colleague or boss that just drives them crazy. And so so that was with me in 2012. I was like, uh, you know what? I don't find like 60, 70% of the colleagues are pretty cool, but like 20, 30% kind of drive me to be unhappy. I saw the ceiling. I was like, "Ah, I don't want to do this anymore. Life's too short to work five days in misery for two days of freedom, right? You want to flip that equation. If you can flip that equation, I think that's pretty good work two days right maybe two hard days maybe three days and then just really just ha- have an awesome time the rest of the week that's pretty good
1: yeah man i think it's like crazy that people don't realize they can like and i think people one can get rich at a job we had a lot of not a lot a good amount of people made millions of dollars working at app which i'm like that's crazy and our partners have made millions you can get rich at a day job that you actually like. I think that it's a little bit of a fallacy that you have to be a founder.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the best combination. If you like the job and you can still make bank, awesome. I just don't think most people
1: have found that. It. Well, it's scary. It's scary. And you know, I think in my 20s, I, I lived so cheap that I was able to eventually find it. I mean, it took me till I, I got to 30. I think the other thing that you're saying that I really, I think is inspiring for me and just everyone out there is just like, you may not make as much money, but if you can find the thing. It might even make more one day, but just find the thing that you're just like, dude, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. Like I like showing up every single day for that, or at least, you know, twice a
0: week. Yeah. I mean, it's, if you stay consistent for, with any passion project you do sooner or later, something good is going to happen sooner or later, you're going to attract someone who is going to help you or some recognition at some bigger publication or whatever. sooner or later, you just can't forecast it, but if you stick with it and you like it, it'll show like it can, people tell if you're phoning it in like elon said in terms of work from home that debate and and people who actually just really put everything they have into their
1: project yeah i mean i started the youtube thing for free again in march of 2020 and now it's june of 22 and finally it's making like you know 15 20 30k a month wasn't the goal, wasn't wow. to make money it was just to like, good it's not bad so i mean the team costs i think our team all in plus expenses is maybe like 20k a month oh okay. so it's like a little bit of profit but we're trying to invest in the channel and like but it wasn't to make money it was like i just these are fun to make videos and you know, and yeah. now we get to up our production and stuff like that. Yeah. What financially are you jealous of? Is there things like you, you see some the house stuff in Austin and you're like, ah, oh, I should have bought a lake house. Like I, I'm a little, I don't really regret it, but
0: I'm like, ah, oh, I should have done that. It's not jealousy. It's uh missing out on, oh, the lifestyle I could live. And so real estate, I'm a real estate addict. And recently with the interest rates going up, I thought, Hey, let's go take a look more aggressively. Cause I bought my uh, temporary forever home in 2020. In mid-2020. Uh, so it's temporary forever home and I love it. Uh, but then again, real estate, you just look at the higher price point and you see what else is out there and you're like, damn, that, that yard is huge or like those amenities are massive or great. And so I recently experienced that with this amazing house. You know, it's, it's just like dreaming. I just dream about a better life and that's dangerous, right? It's, it's actually disappointing because I'm satisfied with my life. But if you start dreaming about better and better, then you become dissatisfied with what you have, and it just never ends, right? And so, really, for me, it's just uh, it's just real estate, and maybe maybe fitness. Like I had a friend in high school; like he didn't work out, but he was always just fit, you know. And I was like, man, you look good. And I know it's never that kind of body type or metabolism or whatever. But maybe that, maybe fitness and uh, real estate are the two things. That I'm like, yeah, that'd be nice to have more of that. So I, I'm constantly trying to actually battle real estate addiction. And I'm doing a good job battling being fit by not exercising too much. <laughs> it's interesting to notice the,
1: the triggers and then not to say we have to change them, but just be mindful of them and how we, how do we want to react to them? And like, it's funny with this. I live in this house in Austin. Like I'm so content. Like I don't, I don't even look like I found my wife. This is my wife house. Yeah. <laughs> okay. and I do every Saturday morning. My favorite thing to do is read the wall street journal real estate section. Do you ever read that?
0: yeah those are huge oh dude these houses are so
1: sick it's always like the craziest like ron burkle bought neverland and you know market it's i i think the one thing you said that i I really did resonate with as well though is that it's not bad it's not bad or good and the quest for more is never ending it's like the quest for amount of followers or subs or money yeah but i do think what is what is actually helpful is to know what levels are out there like if you actually can dream like you can see a 10 million dollar house and you go in the house like i airbnb'd a nice house two years ago and that's what finally made me realize like oh shit like your overall life is better. So I think being able to experience the dream or have big dreams or see them yeah. could be a great inspiration. Like I drove a Ferrari on Tuesday. This guy came by for an interview. He wanted to do founders and Ferraris. I drove in the Ferrari and I was like, dude, this stresses me out. Like I really miss my Miata, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but some people learn from me, Ferrari, like, dude, I'm going to work hard one day and, and get this Ferrari.
0: Yeah. I think what stressed me out too is like the door dings or you go through a pothole and you're like boom, you blow the axle or something. I don't know. My brother was stressing about a door dings in his
1: minivan, like his 2015 minivan. And I'm Not like, really
0: <laughs> Well, um, it's good to rent, right? Good to rent for, a, for like a weekend, the Ferrari, and then just yes. hand over the keys. Yes. Yeah. How could someone who doesn't have a lot of money get into real estate?
1: Because I like, you know, I own a few properties and it is it's fun. One, you could share it, people can use it. You can, you can make this money
0: on it. important thing about real estate is to think in uh, as an investor would in stocks. So if you are a renter, you're actually short the real estate market because you're a price taker, right? You're a price taker to and, and at mercy to inflation and rising rents. So you're only really neutral real estate when you own your primary residence. So you're floating up and down with the real estate market, but you're not benefiting so much because you have to live somewhere, right? You're only really long real estate if you own more than one property, or at least if you're you know, renting out many of your rooms and trying to make it as a business. In terms of getting long real estate, it's not easy because prices have gone up and mortgage rates have gone up. It's a simple framework where you look at the property that you could conceivably buy, take 20% of that. Maybe it's 10% for the down payment, but let's do 20%. Look at that target number and then calculate how long it'll take for you to get there based on your saving rate and how long you're working. So it has to be really methodical in that way. You can dream all you want, but unless you start crunching the numbers and looking at the math and, and what is it you exactly could be happy buying, uh, you're not going to get really anywhere. But for me, it was a mission to try to get neutral real estate as soon as possible, because I knew that, um, if I could get neutral real estate, life is much easier. If you can control your cost of living, you can take more risks, whether it's a business or your job or whatnot. And I wanted to build that property ladder where every three to five years, I would buy a piece of real estate that I would live in. And then I would rent it out for passive income. And then I would buy a new property. And then if you can do that over a 20, 30 year period, you can easily build a organic three to five rental property portfolio and have them pay for your retirement. When you're 50s, or 60s. Would you say that's your real estate playbook? It's the easiest playbook that I have found in terms of saving for that down payment, buying the property that you like. Because if you like it, other people are going to like it. You know the property more than anybody. And then you rent it out, buy another one. So I've done that um, four times already. And so I do have uh, four rental properties that pay for half of my passive investment income. And that's been great. But I reached a limit recently because I don't want to deal with tenants or maintenance issues anymore. So I I reached a limit of four, so three in San Francisco, one in Lake Tahoe, and I decided every cash flow dollar allocated to real estate after would go into public real estate funds or private real estate funds. Public REITs, for example, so it's 100% passive or private funds, which invest in the Sunbelt. For example, Fundrise has funds that do that. They invest in single family homes in the heartland, the Sunbelt. And that's a way to diversify my overexposure to expensive San Francisco real estate, where cap rates are low. And I'd rather take advantage of higher cap rates, lower valuations in the Sun Belt, right? And it's 100% passive. Do you use your the vacation property in Tahoe at all? I do, but not as much as I want. But it's coming because uh, my daughter's two and a half, my son's five, so we're going to start going there more often. And the funny thing about the vacation property is that I bought it in 2007, right? That's 15 years ago when my financial profile was different. So what I imagined then turned out to be different from The reality, right? And so that's another caveat. If you're thinking about buying a vacation property, your tastes or your family situation might change in the future. So it's very hard to forecast because, like now, it's you know it's like a really it's a it's a two bedroom, two bath condo, right? And it's much smaller than my existing house right now. So like when we go on vacation, we're going to go from our house to a seventy percent smaller property, and so it's kind of like a mismatch, right? So it's kind of interesting in terms of how life turns up. I think the other thing that you've done really well that I admire is I also think
1: you are looking at some properties based on really interesting attributes. I just remember some of your articles you're like, I bought this place because it's close to the ocean. It has a view. And it was a few attributes that I thought other people didn't appreciate. You
0: know, if you go to any international city in the world, any property with a view, ocean view, lake view, river view, what kind of water view, trades at a premium, except for in San Francisco. Uh, because the ocean is to the west side of San Francisco and downtown is on the east side. So if you're on the west side, you're farther away from downtown. And also when you're on the west side, it's cooler temperature because you're closer to the ocean. So there's this, uh, this bias against uh, and this belief that it's always foggier on the west side. So, I mean, that was like one of the clear arbitrage opportunities that I saw and I still see today, at least in San Francisco, it's like ocean view properties, you should buy that all day long because they're going to eventually trade at par, if not at a premium to the median home price. And so there are like these little arbitrage, I, th- I would say, opportunities in any city you go to, you just have to kind of recognize what could be the next opportunity. You got to kind of uh, forecast where you think demographics will go and where tastes will shift. And so obviously, the pandemic really accelerated at least the desire to buy properties on the west side of San Francisco near the ocean with views because people didn't have to go downtown anymore, right? But that was just luck.
1: Are there any other opportunities you're seeing in real estate or in finance and business today? This is a very small audience. Like normally you'd charge for this, but this is free for them.
0: I mean, for for six years, I believe the Heartland and the Sunbelt were no-brainer opportunities to buy, right? Why does San Francisco, New York City have to have a monopoly on, you know, being the tech hub or whatever, right? So you're seeing those tech hubs spread out, like to Austin, right? Miami, Austin has done great. But since the pandemic, the interesting thing is, so your city and other Sun, uh, you know, Heartland cities they've done phenomenally well, right? 20, 30, 40% annual increases. Whereas the big cities, Manhattan, San Francisco, Seattle to less than, you know, they've actually done, they've underperformed, right? They're only up 5 to 15% a year. And so to me, it seems like there's been a back to normalization a little bit, where I think there's a lot more opportunity back in San Francisco and New York City again. Because here's one thing that actually people don't realize. Well, one, the income is, very high in places like San Francisco, right? Like you got like 35-year-old techies making 350 dollars to $450,000 a year. They shack up with someone else, they're making 700 dollars to $800,000 a year, right? These are like diamond dozen engineers who are manager level or whatever. And so the income supports these valuations. But the one thing people don't talk about, I've not heard anybody talk about this, is that over the past two years, the pandemic has throttled foreign investor demand of US real estate. And before the pandemic, right, foreigners were buying like $100 billion plus of US real estate every single year. But during the pandemic, you couldn't come. The Chinese, the Russians, they couldn't come. They couldn't kick the sheetrock. They couldn't buy the property, right? So if you think about it, over the past two and a half years, there's pent up demand of over $200 billion in foreign demand for US assets, real estate. And so if the pandemic ever subsides, which it seems like it's subsiding, even though the case counts are really high. And if the borders reopen, you could see a massive flood of capital come to the United States to buy up first coastal city real estate, and then slowly go inward. And I think this is going to happen because the USA, we outperformed the world during the pandemic. Our stock market outperformed, the ability to acquire vaccines outperformed. So rich people or anybody overseas are like, you know what, maybe we should plant some assets in America. Is there any way you can take advantage of that? Yeah. So the way you take advantage of that is first by looking at underperforming coastal city real estate markets and they've underperformed the hardline cities. Cause I think there's a normalization here. Like the hardline has gotten very expensive. Incomes have gone up, but the coastal cities, which were, used to be very expensive are relatively less expensive, especially compared to incomes. And so you want to position yourself to own these properties before the foreigners sop up all the coastal city real estate again.
1: We got to end the episode. I got to go. Got to go on Zillow right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the funny thing is like LA, I've
1: loved LA. You know, I'm from the Bay Area, similar to you. And, uh, you know, I've, I'm from Northern California. And I went down to SoCal maybe 10 years ago. I was like, this is so much cheaper than San Francisco. So much cheaper. And then like that yeah. caught up to even being higher mm-hmm. now. But the, I think that's a really interesting insight is that the California real estate is not that much more. Like Now housing in, in Austin, like where the area I'm in is about a thousand to
0: 1200 square foot.
1: That's California. That's some California pricing, that's, right?
0: That's now. California. I mean, that's big city, California, 1,000 to 1,200. So uh, there's relative value on the coast right now. So if you, you buy San Francisco, LA real estate, you're basically trying to buy ahead of Asia money coming to the West Coast, right? If you buy New York, Boston, maybe Miami real estate, you're, you're trying to front run the European and Russian money trying to buy the East Coast. It just takes time it's just money is so fungible. It just flows to where there's the best opportunity and the best returns. And I think it's just going to slowly go inwards in the country because we, we already have a head start in America. We, we know America better than foreigners. The foreigners know the coast, and then they're just going to slowly go to the center. That's my belief in the long-term trend. And if, if you looked at property in Hong Kong, Paris, London, so expensive compared to most big city cities in America, it's just night and day. But we have like some of the best income opportunities, the best wealth creation opportunities.
1: This is also like a thing that I I learned about two months ago. My property tax bill is 30 last year, which it's higher this year. Last year was 39,000. That's a lot. But don't you guys have a cap in Austin where it's like, there's like homestead exemption that limits it to some extent, if it's your homestead, but not if it's a rental property. But my homestead is now it's a homestead. So hopefully it'll be lower. In California, the property taxes are much lower. So it actually is good to retire in California when your income goes down. While you're, you know, while your income is high, theoretically, you want to be in a, a no income tax state. So yeah, like Texas. someone pointed that out to me. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting ARB on your location with age.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. California taxes overall are, are high. I mean, yeah, the property tax rate is like 1.24%. And there's Prop 13, which keeps the property tax from rising no more than an index, like 2 to 3% a year. So that's good. But then the absolute property values are high. So, yeah, I would love to pay no income, <laughs> state income tax and be in Texas, but then I'd have to relocate to Texas, which is fine, but it's such a pain now with family. I should have done things younger. So that's another thing. It's like if you're unencumbered, move, travel, optimize, take your risks. But once you get older, if you have family, you got to take care of your elders and the young kids, man, it's, it's tough. It's tough. How do you find a good rental property? Like if I was looking for one in L.A.? I mean, I love looking for properties that are stale fish listings, right? So like listings because that they, they price too high because they were thinking that they were going to get the January 2020 all time or whatever it is, right? They just mispriced it. And so what happens is when you price too high or you misprice, it sits on the market. And then what happens is people start circling like vultures, right? Or they just start wondering what's wrong. Why doesn't anybody else buy it, right? It's like a, it's a game of, uh, it's like a mental game. And so what happens is, then you can actually underbid below market because there's so much stain on the property. And so basically I try to look for properties that are, have been listed for over 30 days and still on the market. Like longer the better. And try to understand what's wrong with it. Is there really something wrong with it or is it just, you know, just the herd just suddenly striking against it. And then you go in and you underbid. If you think the market is 100, you go 90. And then you see what happened. I mean, you try to be a vulture because right now we got DocuSign now and you just click some buttons. It takes like one, two minutes to submit an offer, right? And so you just, you can spray and pray on these stalefish listings. It's kind of like a numbers game. Sooner or later, someone's going to bite and be like, oh, okay, this is interesting. And because you know the market so well, I think you can find a good deal that way. I still think one of the craziest things about real estate is that the submitting an
1: offer cost is still so low. The fact that you can submit offers for like a G, there's not really discouragement
0: from to just make stupid offers. It's like dating. Like if you don't ask, like if you don't ask anybody out you're never going to go out, right? So you should look at a hundred potential partners and ask a hundred of them out. Even if you have a 1% chance, you got to ask a hundred to get one. Otherwise you're not going to get any. So spray and pray. I love this. I think where I come back
1: to is like, all right, do you want another thing to deal with? And like, do you really go to LA enough or do I go to like Utah or Colorado or some of these places? Like- yeah, you're
0: not going to go there enough to justify the cost probably. It'll justify if it's a raging bull market that goes up another 10, 10 plus percent a year for years. But, you know, that's when you got to, I think, go light and, and just rent and enjoy.
1: That's kind of, yeah, I think, you know, buy this, not that, just like your book. Sometimes there's things that are easier just to uh, not buy it. I did want to ask you about recession. If there's, you know, who's it's happening, it's not happening. I don't really care. And I don't know if I really believe in recessions. I feel like people still eat, people like you are getting Toro, people still drink, people still sleep. <laughs> but what I'm curious about is how, how do you think people can play offensively? Like if, you know, some things they could do offensively and defensively, you know, if the markets and things are tightening up, because like one thing someone said to me recently, they're like, you know, interest rates are going up, which means everyone's like, ah, it's becoming more expensive to get a house. And they're like, well, if less people are buying houses, I'm going to go in and see if I can buy more houses. And I was like, ah, oh, it's kind of like a little counterintuitive offensive thing to do during a potential pullback. So I guess you know, you, you're definitely a financial expert to me, so I'd, I'd love your, your suggestions or thoughts on that.
0: Well, I mean, the ideal goal is to outperform on the way up and lose less on the way down, right? So during a recession, cash becomes more valuable, even though inflation is eating away at the cost of your true buying power of your cash. But in a recession, you need to cash up because there will be buying opportunities. So you get to take stock of your cash, understand you know, what you can liquidate, to raise cash if necessary. because if things get really bad, I mean, because we could actually be in a recession right now. I mean, we had a negative quarter in the first quarter of 2022, I believe. So another quarter, that's technically a recession. And this is it, right? Down 20% in stocks, down 10% of bonds. Real estate is kind of the last man standing. It's up, right? It's up when every other asset class, including crypto, is down. So in that sense, I don't think you should be chasing real estate now as the last man standing. It's tremendously outperformed. Instead, you should be really, I think, looking at your cash, accumulating cash, and just being that and adopting that vulture mentality and waiting to see if there's going to be great, great buying opportunities. And you should always be doing that actually in a bull market or a bear market. Yeah, I was looking at, you know, real estate listings because rates have gone up, right? And if you have cash, you can be more competitive in your offers to get a better price. But the key here is if you have cash, you're you're going to outperform and wait for those opportunities.
1: How do you know when it's the right opportunity?
0: It's hard to tell. you know. So one of the key theses, theses, is that right? In my book is think in probabilities, not absolutes. Because if you think in probabilities, you'll take more calculated risks. I have like a 70, 30 decision-making framework. And that says, if you believe there's a 70% chance or greater, you're going to make the right decision, go ahead and make that decision with the humility and understanding you're going to make the wrong decision 30% of the time, and you're going to learn from your mistakes. Too many people wait until they have 90, 100% 90, 100% certainty before starting that business, buying that real estate, doing whatever. And then as a result, they never do anything, right? And then they look back on their lives with regret and say, Man, I wish I did this and I wish I did that and whatever. And so you will never 100% know when it's the right time, but you have to create a decision making framework where you believe at least with a 70% or greater chance, probably you will win. You got to continue to make those decisions those positive expected value decisions because over the course of your lifetime, you're going to win if you really truly are accurate in those decision-making forecasts and your beliefs. Dude, I love that.
1: Any defensive things that you've done? Like I'll tell you one thing, I straight up, I love looking at my credit card bill. Oh yeah? Oh, I love looking at my credit card bill. <laughs> I don't know, just like it's a lot of times, sometimes I'm like, oh, it's not worth canceling. But now at AppSumo and as well as my personal, we made a list of everything we have a subscription to and every person who's an advisor or contractor that's not full-time just as a review And it's like, oh, what can we consolidate? What's not being used? And the amount of random stuff that we've signed up for, you know, it's like, you know, small holes sink big ships.
0: That is good, good business. Um, It's interesting. I haven't looked at the credit card bill. I mean, I gotta be honest, in many years, because I'm on automatic pilot where in terms of saving and investing, it's I save and invest first, and then I just spend whatever it is that's left over. So I just kind of think about it that way. Well that's good. It should remind me to go through our credit card bill, our household and business credit card bill and see what we can cut if the recession does come. If it does or doesn't. This is the thing though. You got to I think people have to change their mindset. If the recession comes people think, "Oh, bad, you know, less earnings, whatever." The way you outperform in a recession is to continue to live your best life. You continue to do whatever the hell you want that makes you happy, and then that is how you really beat a recession. You're like, "Hey, recession, stock market down 20%, you're still biking." You know, 100 miles, your ass hurts. And, you know, you're drinking a beer at the top of the mountain with your friends. Oh, buddy. It's good life. Who cares about a recession? So the key to, in a recession is making sure you're financially secure enough to do what you want. So if you continue doing what you want, you're going to beat that recession. Have you made any changes based on if things are, are turning or not? I mean, my main change is that I'm going to spend more money because I'm going to use my money to try to improve the quality of my life and the things that I own to counteract a recession. That's the thing. I, I actually plan to use my money because hey, if the market is going to take away my money, I better try to spend my money before the market takes it away. <laughs> it's like a race to see who can spend it faster. Uh, you know, sometimes that's how you feel when the markets are down a lot, right? So I think change that mindset, live your best life, use your money actually to counteract the negativities of a recession. Yeah, man, I
1: like that because I think recession is a lot about a plan. I think at the end of the day, it's plan.
0: Like, what is your plan?
1: Like, what's your plan on defense with keeping your money in your cash? And then, like to your point. What's your offensive plan where well, one, there's a lot of ways to live a great life without a lot of money. Like once you buy the bike, it doesn't cost me any money to, to ride the bike, maybe for a tire or two. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of really affordable and fun ways to just keep living a great life. The recession thing is just like, what's, what's your plan to do stuff about it? I think people kind of are waiting for someone to tell them or like, oh, it, you know, hopefully this will, this will get work out. And I'm like, it's not going to work out.
0: Like you have to make it work out. Yeah. You got to make a plan and, and you should set anchors. So you know, the average bear market lasts about a year and is a 35% drawdown. So what you can do to front run a recession is to look at your positions in stocks, for example, and, and just cut off 35% and then just reflect how you'll feel and how you'll change your lifestyle or whatever and say, okay, that's a realistic downside scenario. I hope it doesn't happen. But if it doesn't happen, then you're happy. If it does happen, you expected it, right? And you just adjust your life accordingly. You know, so for me, I've, I've lopped off 30% of my net worth. Okay, 30% of my net worth, done, gone, incinerated into thin air. How will I change the way I live? And I decided I'm actually going to spend more money because that pisses me off that I'm losing all that money in thin air. I'm going to, I'm going to try to spend it on my experiences and things so I, I don't lose it to the market as much. It's, everybody's different, but you set anchors, you set goals, you plan accordingly. I like the,
1: the, the anchors thing. Like at Apsuma, we were talking about revenue growth yesterday and it was like, you can have revenue growth, but you need to have, we have a revenue goal and it's like, well, we do need anchors on profit because if you have all this revenue and zero profit or negative profit, you can't pay anyone. Yeah. Uh, so you need to have some uh, counterbalancing metrics, I like guess is what people are, are calling, the kids are calling it these days. <laughs> I was curious, roughly how much money comes from financial samurai versus the you know, passive income stuff on the side,
0: like the real estate and dividends or whatever you're comfortable sharing. I have never revealed financial samurai as part of my stealth wealth mantra, but it's enough to take care of a family of four in San Francisco. And then so I have my passive investment income is estimated to be about 340,000 in 2022. So this would be like the third year of investments generating over 300,000. And that's been my goal. My original goal was 100,000, so I left in 2012 with 80,000. It's just me so who cares? Totally live off 80,000, right? Anybody can. And then when my wife left, also at 34, 34 and a half, 35 in 2015, our goal is to do 150, right? It makes sense, right? Kind of double it up. And then once we had our kid in 2017, our goal is to go to 200. And then once we had our second kid in 2019, it was to go to 250, 300. So that's it though, because we're not having any more kids. 300,000 is good enough for a decent lifestyle with family four in San Francisco, and so that's about it. So right now I see Financial Samurai as total gravy, which is why, you know, you see my writing. I'm just writing about whatever my, I'm experiencing. I'm not trying to optimize for a search engine. I'm not trying to like pimp out tons of products. I'm just writing about life and maybe what some people might, you know, feel might be experiencing. And so I see it as gravy. And the good thing about seeing Financial Samurai as gravy is because I reinvest everything or most of it into more investments, right? And then because it's gravy, I'm not beholden to money right? I don't have to do anything. I don't have to hire anybody or do this or whatever. It's just like, who cares? I'm just going to write and have some fun and talk about real life. And so I think that's a differentiating factor, right? Like I'm writing about real life. I'm not writing about the latest product review or something, right?
1: A part of what what you said that I think a lot of people can learn from is you had a goal. Like I remember my passive income goal was like 10,000 a month or 120,000 a year. And it was just, okay, cool. I have something to work towards.
0: Yeah. It feels good to work, have that goal, even if like it's a super stretch goal, Even if you fail, you're going to do a lot of things to make yourself achieve that goal versus if you had no goal, right? You'll go much farther if you have that goal. One thing I realized is that um, there's a saying, have kids and the money will come. And the reason why is because you'll end up loving your kid more than anything else in the world. So you're not going to mess it up. You're going to try harder, right, to be a good parent. And you're probably going to try harder to eat better, try harder to exercise more so you don't waste away and then die too young. That was something interesting that I clearly learned in 2017. People told me about that, but you got to experience it yourself one day. So just have those goals. But man, you got to figure out when is enough. Like I'm so happy I wrote this book in the pandemic because it kicked my ass and I've had enough. I don't want to do anything anymore after August 1st, 2022. I want to live your life. Well, no, you seem pretty busy, but I want to have that nice bike. I want to go ride around, you know, and I can go bike to the beach. You know, just sun, suntan my cheeks and just relax. I'm working more than probably I ever have. And I'm enjoying life more than I ever have. That's great. I was not working
1: for the past few years. And, you know, I was doing projects and podcasting too, but not like hardcore, like, you know, focusing on it. And I will say there's definitely been a correlation of putting in work, showing up. Yeah. I think about that phrase showing up a lot and like the fulfillment that has come with that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's great. Like as fellow entrepreneurs, it feels great to create. Create something from nothing and, and test out an idea and see if it works or not and pivot and iterate. It's fun. It's fun. The plus, you get the rewards. You get all like, if it goes well, good. But if not, you're enjoying
1: it. And if it, if it goes great, uh, if it goes bad, okay, at least you're doing what you like. I like your uh, phrase though, Sam. If it, it's great to create, you should uh, trademark it's that. It's great
0: to create.
1: <laughs> financialsamurai.com. It's great to create. What uh, <laughs> no. The final thing I'm curious with, uh, with Buy This, Not That, and when we put out the show. It's coming
0: July, mid-July? July 19th, 2022. What is your hope for the book? Buy this, not that. My hope is to provide people more courage to do what they want. If you think about all the stresses in your life, it's because people, people not enabling you or allowing you to do what you want, whether your boss, your business, your client, society. I think just more people need that courage. And you gain that courage. You gain that courage by understanding your finances, by building those finances to a level that can provide enough livable, passive investments so you can do what you want. And the book is not just about achieving financial freedom sooner rather than later. It's really about tackling some of life's biggest decisions, a lot of dilemmas that we face. So some of the dilemmas might be marrying for love or marrying for money or having kids later or having kids earlier, joining a startup or working at an established firm. A lot of these dilemmas I think many of us will go through, and I'm trying to provide a framework so that a lot of people think, if I knew then what I know now, things would have been better, right? So the key to never saying that again is to listen or learn from someone who's been there or who's gone through that experience before, and just listening and being open to other perspectives. So I'm really excited about the practicality of Buy This, Not That. It's just not about making money, passive income, building your net worth, but it's about making better optimal decision so you can live your best life i like the courage part too man
1: courage is like being afraid and, and doing
0: it anyways Yeah. You know. yes i mean think about how many people muzzle their beliefs because they don't have the courage to speak up because they just they're afraid of losing their job or afraid of losing that raise promotion whatever it is you know and so if you can just have that courage to say and do what you want um I mean, life is so much better amen
1: all right sir keep it real it's good seeing your face brother all and, right, uh, let's keep in touch with the book all right appreciate it that is a wrap. I hope you love the episode as much as we did making it for you. Go get Sam's book, Buy This Not That. It's on Amazon or at financialsamurai.com btnt. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo dog, let's go grocery shopping together. And before you go, tweet at me or slide in my DMs or follow me on TikTok at Noah Kagan. I love hearing what you think of these episodes and connecting with all y'all. Also, remember to go subscribe to my newsletter, that's sendfox.com slash Noah. I put my best tips into a single short email each and every week, that's sendfox.com slash Noah. Finally, a couple shout outs to the amazing team, thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for making these episodes, he does so much. Thank you to Mitchell, Jeremy, George, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, and Jen from the door team for all the magic y'all do. Finally, a shout out to Celeste, our senior designer at AppSumo for making the Start Your Podcast Collection homepage on AppSumo.com, check it out have a whimsical day <laughs> what's your favorite sparkling water it's probably well dram you gotta check out this dream, dream it's crazy i love it out in colorado